What's up, gang? This is Hoptimus. You've been listening to one of the great new podcasts from Ruminations Radio Network. If you want some more tasty sound vibes, come check out my new podcast, The Retro Futurist Culture, where we talk about alternate timelines, cyberpunk, anime, and other crazy worlds. If that does not strike your fancy, we have plenty of other great shows at ruminationsradionetwork.com. Be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Welcome to the Blue Rose Task Force, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and the wider universe. This podcast is watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we consider as we go along. Today, we are looking at the sixth overall episode of Twin Peaks, Episode 5, often known, depending where you look, as Season 1, Episode 6, Episode 6, or what the German regionalization team named Cooper's Dreams. I'm your host, John. Episode 5 begins with Cooper waking up to singing Icelanders, who continue partying all the way through Cooper's morning coffee. Audrey enlists as a junior detective partner, but he cuts her off, and she has to settle for flirting. Ben scolds Jerry over noise complaints, and they conspire to make the Icelanders sign the Ghostwood deal, then hide newly arrived, still broken Leland from sight. At Jacques' apartment, the lawmen find evidence and a photo of a cabin, while Shelley and Bobby get hot over taking down Leo. Norma and Ed step back again and Emery Battis learns Audrey is not a child anymore. James tells Donna his model and backstory. They enlist Maddie to help them solve Laura's murder. Jacoby breaks down Bobby and learns Laura broke him first. And the lawmen discover the log lady's cabin, where they learn manners, and the log reveals what it knows. Then it's on to Jacques' singing cabin and Waldo the minor bird. And the party begins at the Great Northern, where Leland's grief becomes a dance craze, and Ben double-crosses Catherine with Josie. Maddie finds cassettes in Laura's bedpost. Leo beats up Hank before he's shot by Shelley. And Cooper returns to yet more singing and a naked Audrey in his bed. So this is a really important episode because it has the first major instance of meeting the log lady. But... After watching seasons one, two, The uh, Return, and reading all the books, um, it kind of reframes how we see everything. So now that we've seen all of Twin Peaks from 1990 all the way through to, uh, all the way through 2017, what questions are we left with? The first one is, what can the Log Lady teach us about the reality of Twin Peaks? How does Cooper? operate in this reality who is audrey horn what kind of presence is laura palmer and how does bobby briggs reveal laura and himself 
Okay, so per usual, we're going to start out by looking at how this episode was made during production. Um, first thing we need to know about episode five is it was written completely by Mark Frost, and it was directed by uh, first to Twin Peaks director, Leslie Linka Gladder. Up to this point, Leslie Linka Gladder had not been connected to David Lynch, uh, as all the other directors from season one. So she, um, at this point, had only directed a few episodes of of this um, of this Spielberg produced anthology series called Amazing Stories, and um, she wasn't exactly connected to anybody except that um, her agent was Tony Krantz, and so was David Lynch and Mark Frost, and uh, she had heard. Um, somehow through Krantz that Lynch was making this television show and um, and Gladder was absolutely impressed by Lynch and she wanted to get in front of, um, you know, she wanted to get her work in front of him as, as much as possible and really, really, really wanted to work with Lynch. So she, um, she kind of pushed what she'd done in, in front of uh, Tony Krantz and the meeting was arranged and it worked out. And I'd say it really worked out because by the end of Twin Peaks, the only director who had directed more episodes of Twin Peaks than Leslie Linka Gladder was Lynch himself by one single episode. Um, Gladder ends up having five. So this was a match really, really built well. Um, her, her mindset through directing, um, and she said this on the Artisan uh, Season 1 DVD commentary from back around 2000, um, She'd say things like, the comedy, absurdity, it all needs to be played as real, and that's why it works. So she kind of understood the magic balance that Twin Peaks had. In that same DVD commentary, she would talk about how she's exploring the unspoken things that aren't allowed to see the light of day. And, and one direct quote from there, for sure, was, it's a world of secrets not allowed to be out in the world. Secrets keep people apart and destroy happiness, which, um, I mean, essentially, that's what James tells Donna in this episode. But um, one interesting technique that she used in this episode that I don't know if it was just instinctual or what, but um, every time one of these secrets was kind of explored in an audible or um, visible way, was when lights were turned on, you know, like we'll we'll see uh, Josie in the shadows with her cigarette and in profile at the end, and um, you know when when Ben Horn turns the light on, we see it's Josie, and then what's revealed is the secret partnership with Ben. Um, when um, when Maddie creeps down the stairs, she doesn't start talking until she turns on the light in the living room when she's calling Donna. And, you know, she reveals about the cassettes and everything. And honestly, that's when uh, Sarah starts calling for Leland, too. Um, and then uh, Maddie turns off the light when she's done and uh, the scene's over. Um, another time when light really shows up is with uh, Jacoby's office. You know, they focus on uh, before before Bobby's scene where he gets completely broken down by Jacoby. We see the lamp with the Jaguar on it and the Tiki style figurines underneath it. Um, and, um, then there's the swinging lamp that is majorly focused on. And that's when, um, Leo was shot by Shelly and Shelly understands what 
the truth of the feelings are compared to when she and Bobby are getting all sexy time about shooting Leo. Um, so yeah, it's like the truth comes out when light is shined. Um, and, um, about the shooting, about the shooting itself, um, Gladder said that all the directors were around for a month. So we get this real sense of community with everybody because, um, you know, some were prepping episodes while others were shooting episodes and others were in post-production doing the editing. And, um, uh, she said, we all kind of became residents of Twin Peaks. Besides the use of lights, um, Gladder really uses a lot of one-shot scenes here. Um, the, the most obvious one is when, um, when Hank is putting music in the jukebox and then Maddie walks in and is introducing herself to James and Donna, and then they enlist her, and uh, then it pans over to Hank, who looks all super suspicious, and then it pans back over to the door where uh, Maddie, James, and Donna are leaving, and then in comes Norma and Shelley, and then it gets to the gaslighting of Hank. You know, that's basically one shot. Um, you know, I'm sure, maybe things are broken up a little bit, but it's implied that it's all just, you know, the camera following this whole thing. And uh, that really hadn't been done uh, the last two episodes with Hunter and, um, and um, oh my gosh, and Rathborn. But um, yeah, the, it comes back here a lot with Gladder. One thing Gladder really did bring in, and uh, maybe there was a kind of a thing with, with Girl Scouts at the, uh, at the Great Northern, but um, one of the show conventions... Um, uh, you know, the uh, the Great Northern hosting conventions, um, that was really started here by Gladder. And um, a lot of the season two directors ended up running with this and putting their own conventions in the space. Um, in this case, uh, Gladder brought in the American Indian movement. One interesting post-production note we got from Gladder was that um, Lynch told her that th that he loved the shot of the record player in Jacques Cabin and he wanted her to hold on to that needle shot for a very long time. And um, when she said that Lynch told her, that was in the editing because we would sit and look at the cuts together. So that's that's kind of crazy. Like, you know, the fact that Lynch would sit with the directors, or at least some of them, you know, maybe he gave his notes later on from, uh, you know, just written down or whatever. but. Um, he he actually sat with Gladder for this one. And um, so he was in the room um, giving notes. And possibly it was every single one in season one. You never know. Nobody else really confirmed or denied this. But it's interesting to see that Lynch was there. He was probably doing post-production for, uh, for um, Wild at Heart at this point. And um, I know that was in the same building, so it wouldn't it wouldn't be out of the ordinary for him to be able to just you know walk into another room for a little bit. So in addition to this being Gladder's first episode, um, this was also the first script that Mark Frost wrote completely on his own, which is kind of interesting because most people don't really associate him with the Log Lady because it was created by Lynch and uh, Catherine Coulson together, like, you know, years ago. And yet, this is the thing that really imprints on the audience because up to this point, we've only seen her flicking a light switch on and off in the pilot. You know, it's like she was just this weird eccentric, uh, you know, wallpaper, essentially. You know, she was just a little 
a little trade of the town. And yet here, we learn everything that we're going to learn in her longest scene, you know, for a long time anyway, through Mark Frost's script. And, um, I mean, if anybody's read the final dossier, he absolutely has a handle on how to write Margaret Lannerman. But um, it's it's just interesting that a lot of people associate her so much with Lynch, yet we all use the dialogue from here by the other co-creator that doesn't get as much credit as he usually should. So some details about the log lady here. Um, her, Catherine Coulson, um, Lynch had an idea how the log lady should look. He had a lot of ideas about it. Um, in um, in Mark Altman's Twin Peaks Behind the Scenes that was written back in 1990, right before the Wyndham Earl scenes were shot, like this book is crazy. You need to find it if you care at all about Twin Peaks uh, production. the The detail in there that really caught my eye was that the log that she carries was the same kind of tree that um, Lynch's dad had his thesis on back when he was a scientist in the Forest Service. So like that statue of the gunman in season three, um, here's another connection that Lynch brings in to his dad. In, um, in Essential Wrapped in Plastic by John Thorne, uh, Catherine Coulson talked to him about, um, about the log lady as well. And um, she said he, uh, as in Lynch, um, he would give me ideas. And then I would ask questions like, what do you think her husband was like, the love of her life? this fabulous woodsman and that she was married to for such a short time. So he's always been able to give me the specifics. Which, you know, right there, if you know anything about how Lynch talks to his actors, um, that is unheard of. Um, Lynch actually tells her details about things that he has figured out. Like, that That doesn't sound like anything that I've heard about for Lynch. So, like, this, this Log Lady character is way more important and I mean, it kind of makes sense. I and mean, she gets a, she gets a, um, in in memory of um, at the end of one of the Twin Peaks season three episodes. And the only other people that get that note are the people that um, that were the actor names. Uh, so yeah, I I kind of think that the log lady is a real living, breathing character inside Lynch's mind. And later on in that same Essential Wrap in Plastic article, um, Coulson says, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say she personifies the world of Twin Peaks. I don't know what Dale Cooper would say about that. But I do think she knows all the elements of Twin Peaks. She knows the underbelly. So that to me says that the log lady knows Twin Peaks more as a whole. And um, I remember um, a couple episodes ago where um, where uh, Cooper was talking to Albert about, you know, like th these people have decency here. They are they are good people. You know, be be nice to them, essentially. And then he starts talking about real estate and everything. And um, I really do feel like Dale Cooper right now is only seeing the good in things you know it's like he's super gleeful about finding the flesh world and everything so it's like you know like he's living in the um the the positive frequency of twin peaks and he's excited to know that he's on the trail of the darkness in it 
So like he kind of knows that the darkness is there and he knows of how to handle darkness. But right now in Twin Peaks, he just can't see it. And and it, it makes a lot of sense that um, Catherine Coulson is kind of calling him out on that, you know, indirectly. But I, I think there's something there thematically. But before we keep diving into the log lady, which we will, um, the end result of this episode after it was made and airing on television, it aired on May 10th, 1990 to a good showing. Um, last week had a ratings bump of 17.4 million, which, uh, which was a significant bump from the week before, which was great. It probably kept the show alive. Um, and um, this week is at 17.3 million viewers, which is only a 0.1. And um, it's only a 0.1 drop, which was great. And honestly, I think that these two episodes in a row being higher ratings than the week before, um, that probably is what, kept abc deciding to actually renew this and turn it into a series this week it was led up to with father dowling mysteries again and um it was airing against a show called falcon crest which was a i believe it was a spinoff of dallas and um falcon crest was pretty much one of the last of the primetime soaps left and um that's what twin peaks was ripping riffing off of and um it's um it's interesting because Twin Peaks beat it in the ratings. It's one week away from its final episode. And um, I mean, as far as I can remember, Dallas was the only one left after this. So Twin Peaks is kind of riffing on this this whole um genre of television that dominated like the previous ten years or so. And um it's it's like it's ushering in the fact that that kind of show isn't what television needed anymore. And, um, yeah, I mean, Dallas makes it a couple more years, but that's only because it was such a jugger <clears throat> because it was such a juggernaut for over a decade. And, um, yeah, so twin peaks is kind of ushering out the old that everyone had been completely comfortable with. And now it's really, trying to imprint on something new. Okay, so we've looked at how the TV show was made. We've looked at how it did when it aired. And now we're going to look at the um, the Log Lady intro that David Lynch wrote in 1993 for the Bravo Network when it was airing in syndication for the first time. And this was essentially supposed to be the final words. So, Margaret says, I play my part on life's stage. I tell what I can to form the perfect answer, but the answer cannot come before all are ready to hear. So I tell what I can to form the perfect answer. Sometimes my anger at the fire is evident. Sometimes it is not anger, really. It may appear as such, but could it be a clue? The fire I speak of is not a kind fire. So breaking it down into some of the pieces, um, she plays her part on life's stage, which um, it reminds me of See You at the Curtain Call that uh, Cooper talks about in uh, part 17. And like it, it, it sounds kind of meta, like, you know, they all know they're in a TV show, blah, blah, blah. But um, Leaf from Same Peaks, y'all, 
um when they did their um when they did their finale on the return um he said about that scene that um that scene is what happens in meditation like when you meditate you can kind of see how it's all flowing outside of yourself and you get kind of a clearer picture without the perspective of being inside your head you know like you can get outside of your feelings and um just see how you're reacting in a more objective manner so i kind of think that when when lynch uses those terms about you know like the play or whatever it's like these characters are so um in touch with the same thing that lynch is that they can kind of see themselves outside of themselves and you know maybe he calls it a play maybe not but like i i feel like it's less about you know it's like hey we're we're all tv characters and we don't exist outside of this and i think it's more just you know they can see themselves outside of their own motivations margaret goes on with you know but answers cannot always come before they're ready to hear um that'll that'll be reflected in the episode with you're two days late um and you know it's like she she tries to make the or form a perfect answer she says here um based around that i think um it's um it's less about um like i can i kind of think it's like you know like you can only you can only talk to people about something if they're ready to hear it, it it's something kind of along those lines i think um and then and then margaret talks about the anger that she'll see here the, you know it's like it might not actually be anger but a clue so that makes me think you know fire is an you know there's an intention behind the fire um we'll we'll talk about that a little bit more about what she thinks of as fire um but i kind of wonder that um you know it's like she'll okay so here she says uh the fire i speak of is not a kind fire so that's definitely denoting that she's talking about the darkness or the uh the more negative aspects of fire um but um as far as the anger like could it be a clue instead of actual anger like i kind of wonder if that's um lynch's way to retool frost's writing of margaret because you know in this episode uh cooper is crankier he's like more um more part of himself like you know he's experiencing the world through his own brain and you know like he holds the 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 um the the dictaphone up to the ceiling to say like can you hear that about the uh about the icelanders um so you know he's a little crabby and um margaret's kind of crabby too here you know she's like you know oh, the fish aren't you know the fish aren't running and <laughs> all these other things you know she um she's um she's a little crabby here and um i kind of wonder if that's more of a frost thing than a lynch thing and this intro is kind of a way to like reframe that you know um you know margaret should be written from the outside rather than um her seeing things from the inside um yeah so again you know it's kind of a meditation style um way of life that um 
Lynch has that Frost doesn't have as much, even though even though Frost is definitely into meditation and everything. He he more breaks it down in a uh, in a Jungian kind of way, and Lynch just kind of um, you know does his thing the way he does it. And um, I don't know. It it makes me um, it makes me remember how how my um, my wayward co-host L would talk about how frost is an architect and lynch is a gardener and um it's just more of a style of how they are and um you know frost he'll come in and like he'll he'll build the scripts and you know he'll work from that whereas lynch he'll just like plant these things and then be absolutely tickled at what they grow into okay so we are at that point of the episode where we start actually looking into the scenes of the episode that we're looking at um and we're gonna look at it through the point of view of we now know everything from every episode of twin peaks from 1990 all the way through 2017 and um we can kind of see the the um overall reality of um of the um show mythology and everything else and um we are definitely going to start with Margaret since we've already halfway gotten there anyway. <laughs> so the scene at Margaret's cabin is the longest. And, I've, you know, as I've said, it's the longest of her uh, of her scenes in the whole series. And it's essentially us meeting her for the first time. And, um, you know, the first thing we do is we come up on her mysterious cabin which nobody recognizes. Um, you know, is it is it the Baba Yaga house, you know, the spooky witch, like, um, like in the mythology? Not really. I mean, um, you know, well, Team Diane over at the Diane podcast, they, they credit the Baba Yaga house to the Palmer house and Sarah Palmer. So um, it's, you know, Mar- Margaret has not become that kind of an archetype, and she never will. Um, where she starts here it's more like the hermit archetype um you know the uh the the uh self-isolating um mystical um you know intelligent of all things mystical you know the uh the the one who like when the hero is on a quest um the hermit is there to um join the journey for a little while impart a lot of wisdom on the um on the main character and then kind of you know stay in their house as the uh as the heroes move on and i mean that's that's like literally what is happening here so it's that kind of an archetype but it's um it's kind of strange because margaret actually lives in twin peaks so it's kind of hard to pull that off and yet here she is where nobody knows where she lives you know it's like harry he's the 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 main lawman you know he he doesn't know. Um, Doc Hayward doesn't seem to recognize, and Hawk definitely doesn't either. They all draw guns when they're outside of the place, and then and then the log lady, you know, she she just swoops in out of out of nowhere, almost like the uh, the 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 character at the dumpster in Lost. I mean, in uh, Mulholland Drive. Uh, she's um, she's interesting that you would get someone who lives in the town but also is just you know like not part of the town at all um 
but why is that i mean you know it's like michael horace you know he he does this crazy like stereotypical tracking scene where he like kneels over uh, a branch and you know like just like you know gets an understanding and then points you know just like in the stereotypical movies of the day for the you know the indian characters um and um you know he totally cracked up the team <laughs> but i mean hawk has a good relationship with margaret in season three and yet here he doesn't know where she lives doesn't know seemingly much about her at all um is it possibly related to the fact that he had to call her on the phone um in season three like you know like is is margaret like actually sort of disconnected from the reality around her um yeah i mean i i know it was the speed of the plot that uh, that made you know the the meeting with her need to happen in this episode but you know it's like why couldn't she have come down to the sheriff station when her log had information you know it's like why do people have to come to her and um yeah like there's there's a lot of weirdness to like is margaret actually part of this town um is she part of the same frequency as everybody else about that dimensionality i mean one of the first things she says is they move so slowly when they're not afraid and um you know it's 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 strange because like in in season three there's a whole bunch of coded language you know it's like we see slow movement as a problem you know the um the swan lake uh, music is slowed down so much when the woodsmen are putting bob and mr c back together in part eight and in part 12 we see um super fast songs uh happen and, you know that that conga line when um when the Mitchums and Dougie and the Pink Girls are all bringing that present through the office of Lucky Seven Insurance to uh, to Bushnell Mullins, and it's that crazy fast conga line music. Um, you know, it's like fast is usually something associated with the positive. When you can kind of see the whole thing, you know, it's like when you can call yourself a, a player in the play, you know, it's like you're kind of seeing outside of all that. And um, fear will make the world move faster than you which means that if you're in the point of view of things it'll it'll be all slow um everything around you will be slow because you're moving faster um but when you're on a love frequency or a positive frequency um the world is moving slower than you which appears that you're moving faster and you know you get music like the conga line um, or you're experiencing the world around you that way. But um, in this case, them working not from fear makes the world operate more slowly around them, possibly. Like, it, it's sort of connected and sort of not. And, um, you know, it's, it's like, if, um, if you're experiencing the world through more of a spiritual mythological way like margaret maybe that's kind of where she's coming from um and then after that um she talks about how come on then my log does not judge and um she's like now that now that she's scolded the folks outside her house you know it's like maybe they are scared a little bit or they have a little bit of fear like what in the world is happening and um 
the the log does not judge you know it's like leave the fear you know it's like you may be starting to go that direction but don't please just come in one thing throughout this um this scene uh margaret expects manners you know she expects you to wait she expects you to just um you know have you know she she offers cookies and uh tea and you know she she says what's there and you know cooper he doesn't he, he's not that interested but you know hawk hawk holds up his hand and he's like what kind of cookie? you know it's like he understands that if something is offered you say thank you and um that's another thing that i really focused on when i've been looking at season three there's a there's an article i wrote called gratitude respect and compassion in twin peaks and it's basically about when you dig yourself out of the shit, the first thing that everybody does afterwards is you thank the people who helped you, and then you offer compassion to others who are still in their darkness. And, um, you know, it's like you thank thank people for what they offer, and people who do not thank you, <clears throat> and people who do not thank you do not convey respect. And therefore... I could see Margaret being kind of annoyed by that. It's like, offer respect, please. And I, I do know that that article focuses on mostly like when you've overcome trauma, you do the following to get out of the darkness. But um, I associate that heavily with Margaret because in the final dossier, Mark Frost like makes Margaret the spokesperson for that kind of language. So you know this is this is his first time out writing margaret and that's his last time out writing margaret and it all just kind of goes together and it, it it ends up feeling all of a piece when you get done with the show some other thing she says over the course of this is you know shut your eyes and they burst into flames um you know it's like if you don't if if you close your eyes you'll you'll burst into flames i mean it's like basically i i think like if you don't watch where you're going you don't see what's coming um it, it's kind of like in an unrefined idea about you know the white of the eyes and looking away um <clears throat> and then like flames flames are associated with the devil here um smoke and fire are associated with flames last time so like our our flames also kind of a side word to fire or are they the same thing um yeah i i don't know exactly if there's a difference between the fire and the flame here but it seems like there is when margaret says the owls won't see us in here that's definitely a frost thing because he said in reflections by brad dukes that um all the owls imagery that came from frost's own dreams and um you know, it's like they, um, they, well, the, in the future, they end up being associated with, you know, like, uh, Bob in one of, uh, in one of Cooper's dreams gets an owl over his face. So, you know, it's associated with those kind of characters. Um, and how can't they see in? Well, in later log lady intros, you'll notice that the fireplace is all boarded up. So, you know, you can't make a fire in the fireplace. Therefore, the owls can't see in. When uh, she slaps Cooper's hand about, you know, like when he finally decides to be all in on the cookies, you know, he reaches for one without being told he could. 
um she says wait for the tea the fish aren't running <laughs> so like the the fish i'm associating with uh lynch's you know catching the big fish you know the fish are the ideas that you can get when you're in that um when you're in that space that's basically like the collective unconscious and um that's kind of like the jungian term you know like where where the dream interpretation comes from and where the universal field of lynch's um all lives you know it's like ideas don't run it's like you have to just go in there and catch them um but when it's associated with wait for the tea that makes me think of all the alchemy that happens in season three and um that's not just frost yeah i mean um lynch called the uh <laughs> called the box set from 2006 the gold box set even though gold had nothing to do with twin peaks up to that point um you know it's like turning the gold all that all the alchemy kind of things um it's been in twin peaks like even if it's just an instinct and um i mean literally you know putting tea leaves in water and heating it up and changing its state i mean that's basically low level alchemy so um yeah getting <laughs> getting getting scolded for not um not going with waiting for the process fits right in now, one of the first things Margaret says is two days, you know, you're two days late. And, um, you know, I, I kind of feel like that's part of like with the, the world sped up, slowed down kind of comparison that I was talking about earlier. But it's also like from a literal point of view, what was two days ago? And it was the funeral of Laura Palmer, which was rushed, you know, the, um, you know the the delusion of the town you know it's like burying the body took precedence over finding the truth and um you know what would have happened if albert was allowed to have the body a little bit more well the 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 guys would have had the opportunity to go um you know investigate other things and you know maybe they would have come across margaret's cabin then and the log would have been able to give them information right away Kind of changes things but um you know it's like how cooper has to wait for the tea to steep um the the truth coming out from the log had to wait for cooper and the guys to steep and um be ready for the truth and that kind of feels like you know the fastest way to the truth um sometimes might not be a straight line you know sometimes the truth might be two days late and the last plotty kind of uh detail is that Margaret's husband was a logging man who met the devil in the fire days after the wedding. And um, Hawk, the very first thing he says after that is, the woods hold many spirits, doesn't it, Margaret? So, I mean, that launched a thousand theories about um, the log lady's husband being in the log um, or being the log. And um, it's, uh, you know, like there, there's enough circumstantial evidence over the years where Frost and Lynch seem to be in lockstep about that sort of thing. You know, like uh, Josie's spirit being caught in the the drawer pole, that kind of thing. But um, in um, in Twin Peaks Unwrapped, the uh, the book and podcast by Ben Durant and Brian Kazaska, um, Catherine Coulson told them, "I think we hold fast to totems that remind us of the people we love." I wouldn't say that the spirit of him is in the log. I would say that she holds fast to the memory of her dead husband. 
but really the log is just a log and we never answer what morphizes the log not a she or a he it's just a good log though so <clears throat> you know it's like she doesn't think that, you know she who got information from lynch about this character doesn't think that uh margaret's husband is in the log which kind of says to me that um it's more of like a tulpa situation you know a memory brought to life i know i've talked about this before that like you know a memory can be brought to life in the form of a tulpa based on um based on certain <laughs> formulas i've been coming up with over the years and um it's um it it's it's a reasonable thing to think that a tulpa could be brought to life and kind of inhabiting the log. Hey kids, it's Don Shanahan from the Cinephile Hissy Fit, one of the podcasts on the Ruminations Radio Network. If you've been enjoying this show, come listen to Will Johnson and I fight it out over cinema's best and worst on Cinephile Hissy Fit. Find us and all the great shows over on ruminationsradionetwork.com. Okay, so in the scene at Margaret's house, Cooper is being uh, fairly impatient about things. And, you know, it's like he's not really um, totally on board with how things need to roll. But then eventually um, she does, um, you know, her uh, Margaret's log does talk about, you know, beat by beat what happens to Laura. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, he's able to get there. But um, how how else is cooper operating within the reality of twin peaks and uh, this episode um starts off really interesting because he wakes up at um he wakes up at 4:30 in the morning um to the uh, to the icelanders arriving and you know they're partying and everything and uh, you know he says once you leave home you lose almost 100% chance to control your environment so he's already kind of off about, um, you know, he's trying to control the situation. So he's on top of, you know, on top of his game and he can't. And he, he like literally calls that out. So on top of being two days late for Margaret's information, he's off his game in this whole episode. Um, <clears throat> you know, he doesn't have time to listen to Audrey. You know, he might have been late for his coffee or something. And, um, you know, it's like instead of um, instead of hearing that um, Audrey wants to help his case, he basically says, you know, it's like, aren't you aren't you supposed to be in school? And, um, you know, he's, he says, uh, you know, uh, um, when when I was your age, Wednesdays were traditionally a school, <laughs> a school day. So, um, you know, like he's sort of flirting with her, which is you know i mean it's it's been an established thing they flirt at this point but um you know she says you know i can't believe you were ever my age and he says i have the pictures to prove it um so things were written down and documented which is kind of a thing over twin peaks in general but um it also like rhymes strangely with how john justice wheeler has a picture of heidi um to prove how she was in the future which is just oh but in this case i like that cooper is doing it in a way that um 
you know, it's like, there's an age difference between us, Audrey. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So after that, um, the next time we see Cooper is over at Jacques' apartment. Um, he, he seems to know in advance to look up and find the flesh world. And then he gets a little bit more coffee and, um, he guesses Jacques' blood type. He assumes that it's on Leo's shirt. Um, he assumes that Ronette's P.O. box is registered to Jacques. And he um, he makes a connection that the truck in the flesh world is also Leo Johnson's truck. So he's making all these connections that eventually get proven. You know, it's like Doc Hayward's like, wow, that is, you know, Josh, uh, Jacques' blood type is AB negative, you know, all that stuff. So Cooper's kind of connecting to the case again. You know, he finds the picture of uh, Jacques' cabin and um, connects the drapes. and. Uh, finds that um you know the the picture of laura that's the other p.o box that jacques is in charge of um you know he he sees the picture of the girl with waldo and assumes that that's all connected to the picture of the cabin that he sees when they come across um the log lady's cabin you know he um you know he's turning down pleasantries he's impatient and grabbing cookies before it's time um the being two days late feels like thematically relevant with, or I mean, it, it thematically connecting to the, how he's low on sleep. You know, it's like he just wants to get to the destination in the picture that he saw. And, um, and this isn't the right cabin. And, um, you know, he, he sort of listens to Hawk that maybe it is, maybe it's not. But, um, you know, eventually that feels like the right thing to do anyway because he does get the information from the log about you know uh, laura's last hours i almost wonder if margaret retuned him there and that like they needed that to get in the right frame of mind to be able to track down where it was that the log described and um you know the clues come together immediately the music is in the air and um I mean, there's so much music in the air disrupting Cooper, honestly, like the Icelanders, you know, they, they were music in the air. Um, that's a negative experience for him. And, um, you know, what'll happen later on with Jerry's speech at the, uh, at the Icelanders party, um, you know, it's like the, the music kicks in before he's finished. And then what do you get? You get Leland, um, you know, breaking down right in the middle of everybody. Um, and then here, is the spookiest way because you know like in the middle of the forest it's singing a julie cruz song that they home in on and um you know it's like once they get there they find waldo they find the twine that's been a clue they found blood on the on the floor you know they found the poker chips uh harry got the poker chips all out of the uh out of the uh, cuckoo clock um everything is coming together exactly the way it needs to and um you know, it's like Cooper is way further along on his case. He's connected Jacques and Leo and Ronette and Laura, and it's all seemingly coming together. And um, and yet the next time we see him, he's back at the Great Northern and there's still music in the air. And his his room is, um, you know, his door is open and it's not it's not looking really good for him. And that's where he finds Audrey in his bed. Um, you know, per, per Leslie Lincoln Gladder in the Artisan DVD commentary, she says, 
Audrey and Dale were never supposed to get together, but the sexual tension was there. So, you know, she's playing on it like it's not actually the right thing to do. And um, we get that with how she says, you know, please don't make me leave. And um, <clears throat> yeah, I think it's um, I think it's time to move on to Audrey. So in this episode, we get a lot of Audrey Horn. She almost seems like in in a way, she almost seems like just as much of a main character here as as Cooper is. Um, <clears throat> so at the beginning of this episode. She's all excited to tell Dale about, you know, she she wants to be uh, his his junior junior partner in the Laura investigation. You know, it's like I can totally help out with your case. And, um, you know, he cuts her off and changes <clears throat> and changes her directions. And, um, you know, basically she has to settle for flirting because, you know, it's like that's that's the only thing he actually lets her do. Which, you know, keep that in mind with how she ends the episode. Um, the next time we see her, you know, it's like she she really wants to be this kind of investigator. You know, she wants to be a girl Friday. And, um, you know, here she is um, talking to Emery Battis at the Horns department store. And he's treating her like a child. You know, it's like, the, you know, we are so happy you want to join the, the team and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, it's like this tone of voice that you know she is obviously this youngster who deserves to be patronized and she turns the table on him immediately you know she goes behind the desk she does all the power play stuff that her dad does she's as relentless as her father here you know her plan is going to happen and um you know then what what does she do she uses her sexuality like a weapon um you know she'll She'll try the same thing where she'll use her sexuality like a tool with Cooper, too. Uh, so she gets mixed results overall. But, you know, it's like she threatens to to say that um, Emery made a pass at her. And if she doesn't get the uh, the position behind the perfume counter that she's demanding. And. Um, yeah, so it it kind of like. The way that I see Hank in this episode, yet again, Audrey Horn is being paralleled with Hank. Um, you know, the way he grabs um the way he grabs Norma in the double R and you know, it's like he basically gaslights her and you know, gets a job role and he, he turns it on you know, he, he turns it around so that it works out best for him rather than Norma. Uh same way that Audrey does that works out better for her than Emery. You know, this episode, you know, like one of the first scenes or one of the first act scenes is Norma calling it quits with Ed. Um, you know, she um, she basically hasn't told Hank. And then Ed talks about how. Um, how he hasn't told Nadine either and because Nadine's not well, so neither one of them have told their their spouses that they want to divorce them. So. um Norma does one of the most uh, thematically relevant um, monologues or, you know, speeches between those two characters. You know, it's like, maybe that's our trouble, Ed. We never want to hurt anyone. We never just take what we want. There's a part of me that's beginning to think that this is how it is when you get to the end of your life and then you don't have anything to show for it. And then, you know, don't call me not for a while. I love you, Ed. So, you know, it's like you get, 
you get this impression that, you know, it's like, even though she's in power, she doesn't get what she wants, which um, really does parallel her well with Emery here, even though he's a sleazebag. Um, you know, it's opposite ends of the, the scale, but they're in the same position. Because, um, you know, it's like, sure, um, Norma gets the day of beauty with Shelly that they talked about the day before. Um, and then, you know, like, what does she get as a reward when they get back to her place of work where she feels the safest? You know, it's like Hank grabs her by the arm and he says, you know, it's like, I don't expect to kiss her or anything. And, you know, he he says how he wants to earn his way back into her heart. And, um, you know, that's like Audrey, you know, she wants to work her way up the ladder. And, um, <clears throat> you know, Hank, Hank tells Norma, so where do I start? And, you know, she says washing dishes, kind of like how Emery says, you know, wrapping. Um, and, uh, you know, Hank tells Norma, can I finish my coffee first, boss? And that reminds me of like, yes, Miss Horn. You know, it's like the, the Audrey pulls rank and Hank is pulling rank, too, by almost forgetting to be polite enough to say boss. You know, it's like neither neither Hank nor Audrey respect or believe in the title of their boss. And it's so frustrating for Norma and like so absolutely on point with Audrey and Emery. Now, with the Norman Hank scene, there's this extra um, way of talking about the inverted power because um, Shelly's watching this happen and invitation to love in the kitchen. Um, it's it's showing this scene between montana and chet and you know chet's supposed to be the one in charge obviously and then montana's like total triumphant villain you know he's like uh, what does he say i love how he says it too he's like uh chetster you little fruit loop you're done <laughs> i just love invitation i love it so silly um <clears throat> but yeah so later later on after that um hank reveals his true nature you know he's He's the bigger bad than Leo, you know, just punching him out and everything. And it's just like how we'll see Audrey revealing her true nature at the end, except it's kind of like how how Emery and Norma are on different ends of the scale. Um, Audrey reveals her truer nature later on with Cooper. But before we can get to that, we have to get through the party scenes with the Icelanders. So at the party... Uh, Audrey is observing in the back how she sees Ben and Catherine like going off to have a meeting. And, um, you know, then Audrey goes between the walls again to learn about how, um, you know, the, the, uh, the affair between Ben and Catherine, you know, whether she knew about it or not, um, Audrey is loving that she's getting this information and she's loving that she's getting information on the arson plan which i don't think ever comes back up so i think the writers forgot that audrey knows about that or that it didn't really matter after all her experience at one eye jack but um in this particular scene audrey's reacting with laughter so is it because she has something on her dad that she's learned a secret um her her gladder in the dvd commentary um she said this about Audrey. If she has the secret, she has the power. So, like, yeah, Audrey absolutely believes that now I have real power here, and she just loves it. And before we can talk about the next thing that Audrey sees at the party, you know, it's like Ben and Jerry have been at this setting up all, all party. And it's like they, um, 
uh, Jerry comes in with a leg of lamb, kind of like a cheese baguette, except this time <clears throat> Ben calls out Jerry about, you know, all the noise complaints. And, you know, so he just wants to get to the signing or he wants to get the Icelanders to sign a contract as soon as possible. He doesn't have he doesn't have time for for uh, Jerry's, um, you know, like um, appetite this time. The other thing they don't have time for at that first scene is with um, is when Leland shows up and, you know, it's like Leland is begging here. Like Ray Wise doesn't know the answer uh, of of who killed Laura. Uh, Leslie Lincoln Gladder doesn't know. And, you know, Mark Frost does. I mean, assuming he probably does. Um, but everybody here is playing Leland as an absolutely grieving father. Um, he he walks in on this meeting and uh, talks about like how he needs something to occupy his mind, and you know he even says that he's afraid, so he's on this negative frequency. And um, instead of giving passion, I mean you know com compassion, like you should when you see people in darkness, um, Ben and Jerry are trying to mask over it. You know it's like Jerry's closing the doors so that like the Icelanders don't see their crazy lawyer. Uh, <laughs> You know, it's like they, they just don't want anything to do with letting Leland uh, be revealed um, to the Icelanders. You know, it's like they don't need another another uh, deal ruined before the money comes in. Yeah, like the so Leland is being shut down. And, um, you know, at the party. Uh, OK, so the music interrupts Jerry's um, Jerry's speech. And Leland starts going, oh, and, you know, he's got his hands on his head and everything. And um, um, Ben wants Catherine to do something. So, like, she she turns it into this dance craze. And it's like it's it's absolutely funny in a lot of ways, um, you know, looking at it from a they are TV characters kind of way. But if you're looking at it the way Audrey is watching the scene, she's seeing people creating secrets around the pain that Leland is going through. And, um, you know, like, this is right after Audrey learns about her own father's shadiness and lack of interest in his family. And, um, you know, it's like from, from Audrey's point of view here, when she's crying, she's seeing a father who is absolutely destroyed over his lack of his daughter. You know, his daughter was was dead and he's just destroyed by it. And this is something Audrey wants. You know, Gladder said in, in the commentary again, Audrey has a complete lack of love in her life. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. And it makes sense that, you know, after this state of mind, after like knowing that she doesn't have a father who can give her what she needs or what she wants, she goes to the next best thing that she wants. And that's the um, that's the FBI man who she's absolutely obsessed with right now. And, um, you know, the, that FBI man didn't want her on the case this morning, shut her down, but then flirted with her. So what does he want? He wants her in that way. That's the way Audrey sees it. You know, she knows that it's not really the best thing to do. And I think she does understand that Cooper thinks the age difference is a problem. Um, but 
Audrey needs to be reciprocated and she'll take it any way she can and she will use her sexuality as a weapon to get what she needs. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, she's her true self is revealed as she goes down this path too. You know, she tries to be the tough woman that she was with Emery, but she can't pull it off because that's not really what she wants here. She wants to be seen. She wants to be understood. She wants to be loved. And um, she becomes that little girl that Emery was talking to. Um, and, you know, it's like, what does she do? She doesn't demand, you know, Cooper's time and attention. She says, please don't make me leave. She begs. She knows that Cooper isn't on the frequency that she's on here. But she's hoping that she can fill her hurt with his affections. And being over her head is the true Audrey. So that kind of that kind of scene with Audrey, like the, Audrey's arc here, kind of has her playing the role of Laura Palmer. You know, she's standing in for Laura again. And I know my wayward co-host L. Um, she she talks about how the horns are all kind of a stand-in for the Palmers, and um, you know, it's like she tries to embody laura's work scene you know it's like she she gets the job that laura had she um she tries to be that kind of um you know e even laura in the sexual kind of way where um you know laura worked at one eye jacks and everything it's like audrey doesn't know that yet but she's kind of like she's trying to be laura without completely understanding that she's trying to be Laura. You know, it's like she wants to have that that position that Laura had in her father's life, too, because, you know, Ben Horn absolutely adored Laura and treated her the way that Audrey should have been focused on. Uh, well, I mean, you know, except for that one way. Uh, but anyway, that's probably why Ben was able to, to give um, so much affection to Laura rather than Audrey. How else do we see Laura and her presence in this episode? Well, Leland feels the lack of Laura's presence here. And, um, you know, I mean, it makes you wonder if it's the absence of memory. You know, it's like, is it a hole where the memory should be? Is that what Leland is afraid of? Because, I mean, you know, sure, um, he might be feeling guilt here. You know, he might be... He might be remembering, you know, don't make me do this in the train car. You know, it's like he does have an understanding of his his um, his culpability in all of this. But I'm wondering if um, that that scene at the end of, of Fire Walk With Me where Leland brings uh, I mean, uh, where Leland is brought by Bob into the, the red room, um, that blood that. Uh, Bob seems to take from Leland and splatter it on the floor. It's like, um, is is that blood the um, the part of Leland that lived through um, killing Laura? You know, it's like, did did Bob essentially give uh, give Leland a certain amount of amnesia, where like he's not going to remember what happened? And um, you know, is like not knowing, like, is there a bunch that Leland is not knowing? that maybe he suspects things or like that's where his pain is coming from uh i don't know there there's a lot of things with leland but i'm 
I'm giving him credit for being able to be a grieving father here, even though he's just as equally, you know, absolutely guilty. So how else do we see Laura here? Well, she's connected to the P.O. boxes. Um, you know, it's like she has a Flesh World account, and that's been proven. Um, she's tied to Ronette and Waldo and Jacques' cabin and Jacques and Leo. Um, and, um, oh, yeah, and then Jacques. He's he's revealed um, in, in his apartment scene to be a trucker turned bartender. So, I mean, does that make anybody else remember Beulah talking in part two of season three about a world full of truck drivers? Um, you know, it's like truck drivers. They just haul stuff. They don't know what it is. They don't care what it is. They... They um they don't have a home, you know, they they drive around in this vehicle and they all they have to do is um make sure that the contents are unchanged. You know, it's like they they completely lack responsibility for what kind of contents they're transporting. They're a shuttle, they're a middleman. And um <clears throat> these are the kind of people that Laura is associating herself with in her final hours. Laura's revealed through um, James and Donna when they're in the gazebo. Um, you know, James starts out with this horrible sob story. Of, you know, it's like my dad's a musician and he ran off and my mom's an alcoholic and then she skips town and hooks up with men and blah, blah. <laughs> it's absolutely cheesy. And uh, I know the um, the Twin Peaks rewatch podcast, you know, the, those guys are saying, you know, it's like maybe that was compelling somewhere, but not out of the mouth of that guy. And <laughs> it just makes me laugh. but. Um, you know, it's like this, this could have been like this really terrible scene between him and Donna, but then he kind of turns it around and says, because he doesn't want any secrets between him and Donna. That's why he told all this stuff. He says, I don't want to have any lies between us. It's the secrets people keep that destroy any chance they have of happiness. And I don't want us to be like that. So, I mean, you know, I mean, um, um, gladder basically said the same thing in that dvd commentary um but you know it's like it's it's something that james learned because between him and laura you know it's like maybe if laura hadn't kept so many secrets she would still be alive that kind of stuff um you know then then he talks to donna about how they have to figure out what happened to laura or it'll never go away their whole lives which really matches well with you know, getting through your trauma. And, um, you know, then, then he makes, he takes this extra leap, uh, where, where James says, she's out there wandering like a restless spirit. And then Donna says, I feel it too. But I tell you what, this is the smartest and most intuitive James will ever be in this show. Like, I mean, he'll, he'll be pretty close in Firewalk with me because, um, Lynch gets him. But um, I I don't see any other time that that James will be as in touch with things as he is right here. And then like literally calling her a restless spirit is just you know it's 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 nice. Um, and where where can that restless spirit go? Possibly to Maddie, who um who basically at the end of the episode talks about how. Laura had a hiding place where she hid her cigarettes and stuff, which, you know, proves that Laura, you know, she she wasn't just in drugs recently. She seems to have been smoking for a very long time. But yeah, Laura, Laura hides cassettes 
in in a giant red box somehow in a bedpost and um yeah so like she maddie was able to find the words but um before that she actually comes into the the double r to meet up with james and donna and um, she introduces herself to donna which is really strange because um she was there serving people coffee in um in that one scene when donna was watching sarah um describing bob to andy who was sketching it so i mean they've met which is kind of odd i'm 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 assuming that's just you know like a uh uh, writers forgot something and you know it was just something that got lost from a production side but um here it's just really really disconcerting um so she she ends up getting a pitch from from uh, James and Donna that you know they they want to take their investigation to the next level because nobody loved her but us and uh you know like we um we know things and we want to find out who killed Laura so um maddie agrees you know she says i'll help you and right before that she's like lifting the glasses off her face so she looks even more like laura when she agrees to helping and um you know it's like yeah then she um she calls up donna and gives the information about the you know bring a tape recorder we found we found things and um you know like she the the whole the whole of it is that she has connections to Laura. She's got, you know, she probably has the spooky dreams too, but, um, you know, she had a feeling that the day before Laura died, that Laura was in trouble. And, um, you know, as they're leaving the diner, she says, you know, I didn't really know her that well, but I feel like I do. My folks were always telling us how much alike we were. So like she's connected at a base level with Laura without knowing any of the details you know it's like basically it seems like they're almost prepping her for the thematic possession of a sorts by a ghost who's out there wandering like a restless spirit you know it's like they're they're letting they're letting maddie um get captured by the spirit of laura and the last person who really reveals laura is bobby after um after the family session with Jacoby turns into a one-on-one between Bobby and Jacoby um it it's revealed that Bobby cried the first time they had sex and Laura laughed at him um so you know it's like Laura kind of wanted to break his spirit <clears throat> um also it comes out that Laura wanted to die um uh, per Bobby she said people try to be good but they're really sick and rotten her most of all and every time she tried to make the world a better place something terrible would come up inside her and pulled her back into hell and um that's something that would come up inside her reminds me of how like she gets that that black and white kabuki uh face when she's talking to harold and fire walk with me where she you know says fire walk with me and then she says me and like they're really bob possessed style way and you know it's like we know bob writes through her in the diary um you know and talks about in you know like when she's under the ceiling fan and firewalk with me you know it's like i want to taste through your mouth you know that kind of stuff so like that's the darkness that i feel is coming up through her according to what bobby is saying except you know he just doesn't know it by that 
kind of metaphysical way. Um, so like that's sort of there already. Um, and then, you know, the detail that, um, she forced Bobby to sell drugs so that she could have them. Um, so, I mean, this episode has to be what Mark Frost gave Jennifer Lynch before she wrote the diary over the summer. Um, you know, it's like, this was definitely done before the diary was even a possibility because the merchandising didn't come up until after the pilot did so well. Um, so this was, this was, um, a Frost creation, which was pretty neat to know. Um, I mean, it's, it's absolutely terrible for Bobby, but I mean, it's, it's amazing character work. So yeah, we, we get, we get to know that kind of stuff about, about Laura. Like she initiated the drug side of thing. Um, and then, you know, later on we get her final night described moment by moment by Margaret's log in like a poetry kind of way. And then when, um, when Cooper and the gang, uh, make it to Jacques cabin, it's illustrated by like physical evidence that completely backs up what the log said. So it is said aloud now, and then it becomes physical. So we get a whole bunch of, uh, information on how Laura lived in the town and at what levels she lived at the town. So that's about all we get with Laura, but I want to double back and go into what we learn about Bobby too, because, you know, it's like Bobby reveals a lot about Laura, but what does he reveal about himself too? I mean, the first scene we see with him, it's all, you know, sexy time with Shelly. And, you know, it's like they're, they're doing all these, these goofy scenarios about, you know, it's like, Hey, Leo, you know, it's like, how are you? I, I'm, you know, it's, like, Oh, what's this? A gun? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> yeah, basically, you know, you know, it's like, stop treating Shelly like that. You know, it's like, they're, they're going through the scenario. Like it's going to be really easy to take care of their Leo problem. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's like they, obviously by the end, Shelly completely learns that, it's an absolutely real situation. And, you know, it's like she has to close her eyes and shoot and like she's crying when she does it. You know, she can't even look at Leo when she actually does shoot him. So it's kind of like how Leo, um, I mean, not, not Leo. <laughs> it's kind of like how Bobby here, you know, he can talk the big talk and everything, but like he doesn't really remember how serious it was with Laura until Jacoby talks to him. So at the beginning of the Jacoby scene, he's lying down next to, you know, his parents, you know, they're, they're, um, the, the camera is going back and forth, almost like a sitcom kind of thing. You know, it's like, uh, Bobby's doing this, he's doing this too. He's doing this, you know, it's like all the, all the behavior issues that he's having. Um, and then we we pan out and we see him kind of lying down, almost like he's uh, trying to sneak away in a dream or something. You know, <laughs> very thematic. You know, he's even yawning. You know, it's like, oh, it's just too much. You know, um, uh, Jacoby asks him, "Do you use drugs?" And then he says, "No," which is obviously a lie. But um, you know, his parents call him out on drinking, and he's like, "Everybody drinks." So it's like the spirit of the question. Um, illicit things only, you know, it's like he doesn't want to do the literal answer uh, for his parents, and he's not going to do the real answer right then either. But, you know, he's also like, in a way, he is sort of a realist, you know, it's like, are you unhappy, Bobby? Uh, Jacoby asks him that, and um, Bobby says, shouldn't I be? 
<laughs> you know, it's like obviously there's enough going on that you know he, he he's a realist in this way. Um, and then a really interesting question. Um, he asks Jacoby, um, "Have you ever killed anybody?" And nobody answers yes or no. Um, uh, the Jacoby you know pushes it back at him. It's like, "Have you?" And then Bobby doesn't answer. He just says, my father has. And, um, you know, it's like they get as far as, you know, it's like that's that's that was during wartime. And, you know, his, his mom says that's different. And he says different from what? And um, it's interesting because, like, it seems like he's really just trying to. To make a connection with his father. Because, you know, it's like he did kill that guy in the forest. You know, it's like in in the diary, they make it seem like he might have killed a drug dealer in Lowtown. You know, it's like he he has this unspoken truth about him that's like right on the surface. It's been mentioned enough where you can make the implication, but it's as said as... um Ben Horn being Donna's father, you know, like at the end of the series, nobody ever actually says that that's the case in words. And, you know, it's like just here, you know, it's like he's trying to, Bobby is trying to make some kind of common ground between him and his dad, who he just does not understand. And um, that pretty much stops there. And Jacoby basically, you know, says, you know, it's like, okay, I'm going to do a one-on-one -on -one with Bobby now. And, you know, we'll do one-on-one -on -one with the whole family, which, you know, gets the family out of there. But, um, you know, then he's like, you know, let's cut the crap, Bobby, so your parents don't know what you're going through. Let's talk about Laura. So, you know, it's like, is Jacoby actually interested in Bobby? <laughs> Not necessarily. You know, it's like he... um. This is where Jacoby gets in his gets gets on Bobby about, you know, it's like, what happened the first time you made love? You know, did you cry? And Bobby gets up and gets in his face. He's like, what? And, um, <clears throat> you know, doing the whole bravado thing. But then Jacoby uses more information that he shouldn't use privileged information from Laura. And um, he says, and then what did she what did she do? Did she laugh at you? which makes Bobby turn away completely. And he does not make eye contact with Jacoby in the entire rest of this scene from this point forward. You know, it's like Bobby is absolutely in that moment again when he was humiliated by Laura. Um, you know, it's like Jacoby asks him, were you, were you very sad when Laura died? And um, this is when Bobby says Laura wanted to die. And, you know, it's like, how did you know that? Uh, because she told me. And, um, you know, it's like there's there's this thing where Jacoby asks Bobby in like a series of you know progressive questions. You know, it's like she was harboring an awful secret bad enough that she wanted to die because of it. And Bobby says, yes, enough that it drove her to consciously find people's weaknesses and prey on them. Yes. Tempt them. Break them down. Yes. Uh, make them do terrible, degrading things. Yes. Uh, Laura wanted to corrupt people because that's how she felt about herself. Yes. And you can kind of see that as Bobby said yes to Laura, progressively over time, he would say yes to Laura as she progressed to degrade him more and more. You know, he, he, um, he tells Jacoby she wanted so much 
she made me sell drugs so she could have them. So, you know, and, and, you know, this is when the, the Laura theme music is like highly kicked into gear too. And it's just like soaring that all this truth that Bobby is able to reveal finally. And, um, you know, it's like he, 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 um, well, well, Ali Sharaba's article, I've, I've mentioned this before, but the one Bobby Briggs and Laura Palmer, a love story, um, she says how he went from being kind and gentle and in touch with his emotions into someone who Laura could completely control and control was something she desperately needed to feel. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, she needed to control things because of how Bob was trying to control her. And, you know, she needed some aspect of her life that she could work with and that she could handle. And um, because that's how part of Bob's abuse affected her, that means that it, even if it's only by proxy, that Bobby Briggs is also another victim of Bob. But, you know, here, at, at this point in the show, we only know for sure that Bobby is a victim of Laura. And um, I don't know. I mean, for for anybody keeping track, you know, it's like, sure, he had the outburst at the funeral where he talked about everybody's culpability. But this is the first time I think that Bobby was ever able to speak out loud that, um, you know, what was happening between him and Laura. I don't think he told anybody else about this. You know, I mean. I, I can guarantee you he never told Mike, uh, Mike Nelson, I mean, uh, probably, you know, never told Leo, all this stuff. You know, it's like I I kind of think that this was him finally confronting his truth. And um, in a lot of ways, like when when you're um, when you're turning into a person who can become that good lawman like he is in season three. This is his first coat on the golden shovel, you know, a golden shovel, two coats. And um, that that um, intrapersonal alchemy that Jacoby talks about in the future after he straightens himself out and becomes less of a selfish idiot than he is here in this scene with Bobby. Um, you know, this is I, I think this is a turning point where Bobby is able to see what the problem is and then over time he'll be able to do enough that the next time he recognizes this about himself he'll be able to do something about it and become a better person well i think at this point to go any further would be would be to go into the next episode so you have been listening to the blue rose task force podcast a production of ruminations radio network and tv obsessive if you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show. And we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore The underscore Peaky on Instagram. Visit ruminationsradionetwork.com for additional great shows such as Oh God It Hurts, and that's the unit of measure Hurts, HZ and 25 yards later and find any number of classic 25YL Twin Peaks articles and content on many other TV shows at tvobsessive.com 
If you want to be part of our monthly mailbag Patreon episodes, send your burning questions and passionate feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week as we cover episode six, the seventh overall episode of Twin Peak. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams. It's a way to kind of deepen and expand deepen the universe the show takes place The show takes place a gift to all the fans.